0: The loudest. The biggest. The brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendola.
1: You know, it was pretty common knowledge that, you know, if you wanted to find a way to, you know, to, to enhance yourself physically, then... There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of options to go to people because you could look at them and say, oh, this guy knows what he's doing, obviously, with the steroids. So, you know, if you want to go find someone, you can find it. Sean Green only made two All-Star games,
0: and he's rarely talked about as one of the most versatile hitters of his era. But when you look back at his stats, it's pretty shocking. If you stack home runs, runs scored, RBIs, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average. When he retired, the club looked like this. Griffey, Bonds, Sheffield, Sean Green. His best seasons were on the Blue Jays and Dodgers, but he was part of the Mets for two of their most memorable seasons ever, both good and bad. The 06 16 that went to Game 7 of the NLCS, and the 7 squad which had one of the biggest meltdowns ever. Green also dallied with the idea of becoming a New York Yankee when he was a free agent. He is one of the greatest Jewish players of all time and sat out games on Yom Kippur like Sandy Koufax once did to varying degrees of scrutiny. Now he's trying to enhance baseball social media game, a place where MLB has lagged behind the other leagues for years. Green discusses playing in the PED era, what it felt like when Andy Chavez made that catch and whether David Wright would have been in Cooperstown plus the pressure he didn't want in the Bronx. This is Sean Green's New York accent. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing tremendous. Thanks so much for joining us. And You were born in Southern California, and that's where primarily your roots are, except there is a point where you moved to New Jersey right in your formative years. How long were you in Jersey, and where exactly was that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was actually born in Chicago. My dad was in sales. He worked for Johnson & Johnson, and their, one of their headquarters was, I think, Freehold, New Jersey. So we moved to Freehold when I was a year old. Stayed there until I was about five or six, and then he got transferred out to California, to San Jose, and uh, I started kindergarten there and went through most of sixth grade. And halfway through sixth grade, I moved to Southern California. So I bounced around a little bit, um, but, you know, it, it worked out because I got a chance to... Uh, at least spent a lot of time in the warm weather where I could uh, play a lot of baseball. Do you have any memories at that age of Freehold, New Jersey? For sure, yeah. I remember waiting for my dad to get home. You know, I was obsessed with baseball from a young age. So we had, you know, a backyard that kind of sloped down a little hill, and and there were no fences or anything. So we'd play wiffle ball and throw the ball, and that was uh, for me. That was a, the highlight of every day was waiting for my dad to get home from work.
0: You were drafted into the Toronto Blue Jays organization, and it was right at the end of their run of winning two World Series championships. You actually got one for their second World Series championship, but your play was limited that year. So how did it feel to be kind of a bit player watching somewhat from afar of a team win a World Series
1: right when you were a rookie? Yeah, it, was, it was incredible. I, I got I signed in 91 um, late, late in the year, so I, I didn't play that season. Um, and 92, I was an A-ball team went out. I went to spring training, but the team went out and won the world series against beat the Braves in a great world series. Uh, so I got to know the guys a little bit and this was my first spring training and I was, you know, pretty awestruck to see guys like Dave Winfield, Joe Carter, Robbie Alomar, just an incredible roster of, of, of players in the same uh, locker room that I was in. So that was pretty cool. And then, um, the next year I went to double a got called up in September with another Former Met, Carlos Delgado, who's a good friend of mine, and uh, we both got called up together along with a few other guys, and, you know, I I got six at-bats, was 0 for 6, but still just to be there and and see the celebration, it seemed so easy, and I expected, oh, you know, I'll get a few of these when I get, you know, when my (laughs) career really gets going, and unfortunately, I never did get another shot at it. Yeah, we'll get
0: to the the Mets playoff run in 2006 but for all the good teams you played on making the postseason was a rarity for you over the course of your career you had a really nice start to your career in Toronto and then there was a decision to be made about what to do when you became a free agent and there was a decision that you wanted to make based on actually your faith it seemed like you were starting to really create a bond with the Jewish fans in Toronto and and seemingly wanted to go to a, a city that had a larger Jewish population. What was that decision making like, and how did you kind
1: of navigate that decision in your career? Yeah, I mean, it was partially my decision, but you know, I was still, I actually had one more year, so I got treated. And what happened was that the Blue Jays were up for sale, and they were trying, um, we were trying to compete with the Yankees. And at the time, the Orioles were really good, the Red Sox were really good. Our division was super tough, and we always, you know, we had a great team. We had Roger Clemens in '98, um, Delgado. Can say God. We we were finished. Just missed making the wild card um, that year. 99 We had another great year. We traded Roger to to the Yankees and got Homer Bush and and David Wells and Graham Loy. So we we had you know quite a quite a good young team. Young pitchers like Chris Carpenter, Roy Halladay, guys who went on to win Cy Young. So it was it was a pretty amazing team. But you know, unfortunately, we were you know just behind this this powerful AL East and the team was up for sale and there was they basically told my agent hey you know we either want to trade him or, or um, sign him to a long-term deal and i just wasn't in a place to want to stick to stay and take that risk of you know kind of being a second or third place team um so that kind of gave me a little bit of leverage because whoever was making the trade wasn't going to give up their young talent to get a guy who was going to walk in free agency in a year um so yeah the Going to a place with a large Jewish population was a big factor for me. I, I learned a lot more. I grew up Jewish, but it was not very religious. And, you know, I was in break, you know, throughout Toronto, but even, you know, throughout North America, as I was playing when people, when the word got out, there's not too many Jewish players. So um, I embraced that and felt like it was important to, to go somewhere with the large Jewish population. New York was a little scary for me at the time because, you know, the, the Yankees were so good. And and i didn't want to come in there and have that much attention and pressure i and i felt like la was kind of the right the right fit along from all you know along with it being my home it was also kind of the right level of of uh attention that i thought i could handle that's really interesting that's a yankees
0: moment in time where they're they're winning four world series championships in 5 years they'd won in 96 98 99 2000 and of course they're at the top of the world and, and it looks like it's never going to end. So at that moment in time, you're kind of thinking like, wow, the spotlight is so hot there. They've had so much success. That might be a little overwhelming for me.
1: I think so. I mean, I was, I'm a pretty um, reserved guy and and didn't love the spotlight. I always liked even in Toronto. I liked being Carlos Delgado's wingman as opposed to being like <laughs> the guy. Then I go to LA and I was more Gary Sheffield's wingman. So I, I liked that. Um, I also think, you know, the Yankees had won in 96, 98, and 99. So I'd go there, like, you know, what's going to happen? On, you know, if, I, if we don't win a World Series, then it's a failure, you know? So it's kind of, it's there. I wanted to go somewhere that hadn't won, um, at least in a long time. And, and uh, you know, I, I had a kind of a short list of teams that I was willing to um, negotiate a longer term deal with. And the, the Yankees, Mets, um, Dodgers, Cubs, I want to go to a bigger market. They were all on, on those on that list. But, um, for me, LA was kind of the top choice just because that's where I was from. And, um, you know, I, I also thought it'd be kind of fun to go in a completely different from the AL East to the NL West and have a total, total change of theory. Mm, that's super
0: interesting. You end up in LA, maybe struggling a little bit early, but then you definitely find your groove and have some absolutely eye-popping offensive seasons. And there is a moment in there in 2002, which is one of the most prolific games in Major League Baseball history. You guys are at Miller Park in Milwaukee, and you put together a four-home run, six-for-six day, a record 19 total bases, which is coming off of a couple of weeks where you had not hit a home run. So how – do you, how did you feel being so dialed in that day, to where everything went right?
1: Yeah, it was kind of a crazy stretch because I got off the first quarter of the season. It was like late, late May. I was struggling pretty bad after, after hitting forty nine home runs and having the setting the Dodger single season record. Then all of a sudden, I'm getting booed at home, um, which is less common in L.A. than it is in New York. Right? You struggle in New York, you're going to hear it. Yeah. L.A. They're a little, they have you know longer fuse for you, and I you know, the stand before we played, uh, the, the Mets and the Expos, I didn't hit ball out of the infield. And I was getting two thirty with three home runs. So after hitting 49, I'm on pace for like 13 home runs and it was, t- it was tough. And then all of a sudden everything just, you know, I kept working on my swing and, you know, just kept battling. And then we go to Milwaukee, the first day there, I had two home runs. The next day I hit a triple. And then the, the third day I had six for six. And then we go to Arizona and it was, um, another home run with Two more hits, and the next day, two more home runs. So it was like this: from being, you know, really one of the worst hitters in the league to having this in- insane streak. I mean, that's kind of, I and mean, that's an extreme. But I was, I was pretty streaky as a hitter. When I found it, I, I would get locked in. But that was by far the the biggest, uh, you know, polar opposite stretch that I've I had in my career. One of the most amazing stats
0: is your 2001 season. You had 49 home runs. 125 RBIs, and didn't make the All-Star game. That that season, you're only tied for fourth in home runs in the National League because Bonds goes crazy, Sosa goes crazy, and Luis Gonzalez has his huge home run season. That must have felt crazy to hit nearly 50 home runs, driving 120, and not make the All-Star game that year.
1: Yeah, that was that's what I was thinking. That was, you know, Bobby Valentine, the, the, the Mets manager, was was the manager. I think they had a little more stay. At the All-Star break, I had about 20 whole runs. So I had a really good second half, but still, you know, I it was what else? Yeah, sometimes there's always a few players that, you know, get quote-unquote snubbed and it's not for, you know, any reason other than kind of as you're talking, there's a bunch of guys that had a lot of big numbers. So it wasn't it wasn't a sure thing if you hit. You know, I was on pace at 40 old runs, but still that that would have been pretty far down the list of of home run hitters that year. Do you feel misfortune
0: because you played in an era where guys like Sosa and Bonds were artificially enhanced hitting 50 and 60 home runs whereas you're hitting 49 and you only half that's only good for fourth in the National League.
1: Yeah, I mean I don't know about misfortune. I you know, I was I was fortunate to have the career I did and and you know, I I used that um the backdrop of the steroid era to kind of fuel me to to show up skinny and strong and 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 kind of be the opposite type player just to be the natural guy going out there and and um trying to have the right swing the right mechanics a good approach and it it definitely fueled me because i was i was proud of of what i was able to accomplish naturally um but you know at the same time I, i think the numbers that guys were putting up also financially helped all of us because they drove salaries you know higher and higher by putting up big numbers and i'm sure i benefited financially from that i'm sure
0: that all of you guys kind of knew what was going on felt like it was a, a wink wink nod nod we know who's doing and who's not it's all over the place was there any resentment from you watching guys that were that artificially enhanced putting up the numbers ahead of you
1: i mean i wouldn't say this Everyone knew who was doing what. I mean, I think as as a fan, you could tell. It's just physically, you look and you could see, right? You see a guy that puts twenty pounds of muscle on in a three three and a half month, four month off season. That that's not not normal. Um, there's guys that you, you hear rumblings later that I was surprised, or guys that came out in some of the different reports that I would have said, "Oh, I didn't realize that that guy was was taking stuff, or you know, allegedly taking stuff." So, um, but at the same time, it was you know, it was pretty common knowledge that, you know, if you wanted to find a way to, you know, to, to enhance yourself physically, then there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options to go to people because you could look at them and say, Oh, this guy knows what he's doing, obviously with the steroids. So, you know, if you wanted to go find someone, you can find it. But uh, I think it was a, most, I, I don't know what the percentage was. It's something that, um, you know, I think there's a lot more people that have more visibility into what that was like. But there's quite a few guys that, that played clean and just said, hey, you know, guys can do what they want to do. I'm going to do my play my game. They can play theirs.
0: So it doesn't sound like you had resentment at the time, nor now any grudges held
1: for what they did. I wouldn't say there's resentment or anything. You know, looking back, like now I say, okay, my my numbers probably would have stood out more. And my decline as a player was... I think a little more natural than, you know, guys who, you know, played into their late thirties or forties and still put up big numbers. Um, but you know, there's no, there's no time to, to resent any of that stuff. You know, I, I enjoy my career. I could have kept playing, decided to retire when I did just to, to kind of get out of that lifestyle, be home with my, my family. And, you know, so there's definitely no, no resentment, no regrets. 2001,
0: you're in Los Angeles, and of course, the attacks of 9-11 happen, and the season is paused. Obviously, they restart the season, but you are personally affected by this, and on September 26th, when you guys resume, you donated your entire game's pay, which was $75,000, to a charity for survivors of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that were in New York. I know that means a great deal to all of us that are native New Yorkers. Tell me about that decision and how nine 11 affected you,
1: even though you were on the opposite coast. Yeah. I mean, it affected all of us. It was just a really surreal, um, tragic stretch. Just even walking outside and seeing no airplanes in the sky was just like, everything just felt like you were in kind of some dystopian movie or something. And, and, for me, you know, I, so what happened is I, it was the first year as a player, as a Jewish player that Yom Kippur conflicted with a game. Um, I kind of got lucky and, um, the other years there was either, it was either in the postseason, which I wasn't in, or it was just didn't conflict. So I decided to sit out a game and donate that money. And, and, you know, at that stage, um, where, are better to, do, to donate the money than to, you know, the people that were dealing with the event that was just completely um taking over all of our attention in in the u.s as well as throughout the world by this point you have a lot of pride in being a great jewish ball
0: player and you're a great player without that but now you're being compared to some of the great Jewish ball players of all time. And and some would say you were the greatest Jewish ball player since Sandy Koufax. That is some amazing company. Was that pressure? Was that pride? How how could you handle that type of label?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I embraced it. I mean, it was definitely, uh, you know, as I got more attention, I had some bigger years than, you know, I would have, it's kind of similar to, I think, some of the players, particularly from Japan and Korea that come over and they have. Um, you know a lot of Japanese or Korean media and the different places that they go. um So instead of having you know twenty or thirty like like Hideo Nomo or General Park had, like I, I would have you know a few Jewish reporters or different things, or maybe they wanted me to come speak at a JCC in in a in a city because there was a hate crime. Or so I I had situations like that. It was a, it was a smaller um, kind of little little. Community, but it was everywhere I went, and and you know I I was proud to be that that role model, and I tried to do the right things, and um, and yeah, I mean it's 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 something that I know how I, I always kind of try to remember how I would have felt as a kid, um, having the opportunity to to watch a Jewish player. So, um, you know, a lot of kids would say stuff to me in Hebrew, which I didn't understand, but you know, particularly in New York. And, you know, they were proud to say, Hey, I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm like, Oh, that's great. You know, so it was kind of this nice connection and it gave me a little bit of a, you know, kind of a, a home fan base, almost every city that I went to. It's funny how life works, you know, things that,
0: that happen to you at one point in your life, you don't quite understand until you're much later on in life, you can look back and have some perspective. You had mentioned that growing up, you, you were not hyper-religious by the time you get to Major League Baseball and you become a star, you really embrace the faith and the identity. Do you look at baseball as a way that you kind of found that, that if there wasn't baseball and people didn't talk about, oh, Sean is a Jewish ball player, that perhaps you would have not
1: found that connection to your faith? It definitely connected me more. Yeah, and and there's a one of our team doctors in Toronto who became a good friend, Glenn Copeland. He would take me to synagogue. And, and it was something that, you know, I, growing up, you know, as a grammar school in San Jose, there weren't a ton of Jewish kids. And then down in Orange County, um, in Tustin where I grew up, there weren't a ton of Jewish kids. So it was, it wasn't like I was growing up in, you know, the heart of a Jewish community. So I, I think, you know, wherever I went, as I was saying earlier, there, there was this kind of Jewish community that kind of followed me around, um, in, in, in a weird way. And, and so, yeah, no, I definitely, um, embraced it and, and, you know, learned more about, I learned more about what it was like to be a Jew and, 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 and all that as a, as a major league player than I did as a, as a kid.
0: The decision to sit out on Yom Kippur was not always met with a lot of acceptance when Sandy Koufax did it, when you did it, was there more acceptance or did you also find that there was some resistance?
1: So the first year was that it was oh one was, yes two thousand one. So it was right after nine eleven. So I didn't really. It was a hard decision for me because you know we were a couple of games behind the Giants and uh, and that was our big rival. The game was against the Giants, and I was playing really well. So it was it was kind of a you know a big deal, offensively to to lose my bat against you know a team that I hit really well against. So that was a that was a tough decision. But it wasn't a big deal because I think nine eleven was was still in everybody's mind, so it wasn't like a media story as much. And and so fast forward to two thousand four. Now we're a couple of games, two or three games ahead of the Giants. Same thing. We're playing the Giants again. And so I made the same decision. I, I played one of the. There's two games that conflicted both of those years. I played in one of the games and sat in one of the games. Kind of just wanted to, to kind of make a statement, but I didn't want also um, as someone who wasn't particularly religious. I felt like it would kind of be hypocritical and unfair to my teammates and the fans to miss two games against this, you know, in this key series. Um, so that's what I did again in 04 and it became a really big story where they were talking, you know, on, you know, daytime talk shows and and radio shows about this religion in the workplace and missing work and all that. And so I was, I was surprised because there was so little, um, there was so little attention in three years earlier, but I guess without the the 9-11, um, Halo then it became a story and so fast forward again to 07 in New York I did the same thing and and you know I just everyone was very supportive all my teammates were supportive and you know especially in New York the Mets have such a strong Jewish um, fan base that um, there was you know there was nothing negative said that at least that um, was said to me I'm sure there's people who had their opinions but you know everyone was pretty supportive Dodgers
0: you wrap up a really good career there go to the Diamondbacks ultimately you're traded in 2006 to a really good Mets team it's still one of the best regular season Mets teams of all time at the deadline you go to a team that's now in the hunt and they know they've got a huge lead to the NL East. they're going to win the division go to the playoffs how exciting is that for you to land not only in New York where you had thought about playing earlier in your career but on a team that right there in 2006 is a wagon.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that was a big factor. Another big factor was, well, I always wanted to play in New York at some point. Um, when better than when the team was already had the division pretty much wrapped up. And then I had, you know, six or seven guys that I had played with some that were, you know, that I'd played many years with. I was, as I said, Carl was one of my closest friends. I played a bunch of years with Laduca, I played a bunch of years with Moda, um, Dwanner Sanchez. Um, you know, there's a couple other guys in there. I played with El Duque. Um, earlier that year in Arizona, so there was a bunch of guys that I knew and I felt really comfortable and, um, Arizona. So after LA, which was a big market, obviously not the same as New York. Um, I went to Arizona. It was kind of nice to be in a small market and just sort of kind of regroup a little bit, um, after kind of deal with some of the ups and downs my last couple of years in LA. Um, so by the time, you know, I was a year and a half in Arizona, I was ready to get back in the fire. And, um, so the timing was perfect. And, you know, I, you know, I, was, I just felt, okay, I, I can't pass up this opportunity. My daughter, my younger daughter was a year old, so it was, it was better timing than if my wife was still pregnant. So there's all always, always, these, you know, people don't always think about the other personal factors that go into a decision, but, um, you know, had been in the year before, I probably wouldn't have done it because it'd been hard to move, you know, in the middle of her late, late stages of her pregnancy. So anyway, um, once I got there, I was, you know, immediately, you know, kind of just settled right in and, and felt felt great to be a part of something that was seen to be a, a really special year.
0: As fate would have it, the Mets meet your old team, the Dodgers, and the NLDS, and you guys have them on the verge of a sweep. 9-5 lead, pop fly, Sean Green under it in foul territory, and you finalize the National League DS going to the National League CS, and your quote was, my ego loved beating the team that traded me no sense to denying that. How satisfying was that to catch that pop foul to, to finish off the Dodgers?
1: Yeah, that that felt great. And, you know, we went back to L.A. We won the first two games in, in New York. And then I had a good game in L.A. And had a few hits and some RBIs and all that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie to having I mean, LaDuca. It was a longtime Dodger. Garamota, Sanchez, all these guys. You know, we wanted to beat them. And we wanted to sweep them. And we – we definitely all kind of had a little bit of resentment for, because we felt like we had finally in LA put together a team that was going to win. And, and, you know, we we got to the playoffs in 04 after battling. We had, you know, the Giants went to the World Series in, in 02 and lost in game seven to the Angels. You know, the diving backs won the World Series. So the West was really tough. It was a tough division. And, you know, we finally said, okay, this is our turn. And then all of a sudden we have new ownership come in. And new general manager, and they basically traded a quarter of our team in 04. Um a quarter of our, our team. They traded six or seven six guys out of the twenty five, and we were in first place. So it was it was a pretty devastating moment as a player. It's like, what? We finally got here and now you they're breaking this team apart because it didn't match what you know the the philosophy of the new regime. And so you know, now it's three years later, and we get a chance or two years later. And we get a chance to to play him, of course we want to beat him. And beat him with, you know, really four or five guys that were part of that team. The the Mets season in 06, you
0: guys had it all. Pitching, defense, hitting, power, on base guys, bullpen. I mean, it was just it it seemed and all veterans up and down the the mat, ready to win right then and there, some homegrown talent as well. You meet a Cardinals team of the NLCS that most people pick the Mets to to roll over, but we get into a dogfight of a series. Were you surprised that a team that was only barely above 500 in the regular season, you guys were locked in a seven-game battle with them?
1: I would say surprised. Anytime you have the guys in their lineup, that they had, they have some, a great closer at the time was was Wainwright. Um, Carpenter was, you know, stud pitchers. Soupon was, you know, they had guys that were just kind of like guys that were going to give you good innings. Um, and, of course, you have halls and and Molina and all the – their lineup was – Jim Edmonds, their lineup was, was really solid. And they just kind of had a, a mediocre regular season, but they were a good team. Um, you know, I, I think what hurt us you – know, you can always look back and, you know, everyone could think of different different moments that could have gone differently. But um, our starting pitching was was pretty much on fumes going in there. Like El Duque getting hurt uh, before uh, – I think it was – I don't know if he got hurt before the Dodgers – pitching against the Dodgers or if it was against the Cardinals but him getting hurt just really thinned out our, our starting pitching and and John Mayne and and Oliver Perez were two young pitchers at the time and they both stepped up and did great um, and our bullpen was solid there but it's just I think we didn't quite have enough healthy starting pitchers to to give us the depth to to win that series I think that was something that um, you know was was a big factor but you know hey we could all look back and Think of moments we could have, you know, done better, plays we could have, that could have, you know, gone our way. And, and anytime you have a seven game series, that's the case. Game seven, though, it feels ordained. It's Shea Stadium,
0: it's Rocket, and Andy Chavez climbs the wall in left field. One of the most iconic moments in Mets history. When Chavez grabs the ball and brings it back and the place explodes, did you feel like, oh, this is our night because I'm a Mets fan, and I felt, oh, well,
1: that's the symbol
0: right there. Tonight is going to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, at first I felt that the stadium was going to collapse because it was just <laughs> the whole thing was—you could feel the whole thing shaking. Um, but Chavez is a great guy. You know, he was just what guy—he was one of those guys that's so underrated because he was—he was—and I play with a lot of great outfielders defensively. He was the best defensive outfielder that I played with, and that's—and mm-hmm. there was a lot of good guys in there, Gold Glove winners, multiple years. Um, but he was. He, he just had a great arm and he was super fast and just incredible awareness of everything around him. Um, So he made that play and yeah, I was with you. I thought, okay, we got this thing. And it was one of those series too, that the Tigers had swept, uh, whoever, I can't remember who they were playing, but they had swept. And so they were sitting there and they basically had like a week off. So I knew, you know, whoever wins this series is going to go in with so much momentum and so much, you know, both teams, you know, we played right up until, one day off and go and you're you're much in much better position to succeed especially a team like ours that had more of an offensive focus you know you sometimes it's nice to have your pitchers realigned for the for the starts but you want it as a hitter you want you don't want any days off so I thought okay he made that catch where to get a couple runs here and and you know we all had our suitcases because you know both teams brought all their suitcases and actually had the entire side of our clubhouse in plastic you know to, for the celebration so the thought was that, you know, we felt like we were going to win. And then as soon as Molina hits the home run, they had to like rip everything out of our clubhouse and get it out of there. Cause it, you know, the last thing you want to see when you're coming off the field after a tough loss is the celebration um, set up to, to roll in your clubhouse. So uh, it was, it was a crazy, it was a crazy change of events. But um, again, you know, they went on to win the World Series and you got to give them tip your hat and give them uh, the credit they deserve.
0: As we all know, final out is Beltron does not get the, the bat off his shoulder and you guys lose in devastating fashion. As you said, the Cardinals go on to win the World Series. If you guys had won that game, do you feel confident
1: that you guys would have won the World Series? I think so, yeah. The Tigers just looked – I I couldn't watch much of it because was, it was a little too hard. But what I did see, they, they just seemed like they hadn't played in a week and they were a little – a little flat, if that's, I mean, it's not necessarily the right word, but um, I think when you're coming off the type of series the Cardinals were coming off of, uh, they were just much sharper. I feel like we would have been in really good shape, and I think El Duque would probably have been back at some point, and that would have helped out kind of our our thinning uh, starting pitching. So 06 wraps up. Unfortunately, 07,
0: you injured your foot, and then maybe you came back too soon. You were with the team, though, in late September when it what came down to that series against the Marlins. And unfortunately, game 162 did not go your way. And that was kind of a stunning end to 07 because there was the big lead late. And unfortunately, it got away from you guys. Was that which was the more stunning ending, losing to in the NLCS in game seven to the Cardinals the year before, or losing on the final day of the regular season to the Marlins in the way that you did?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say it was even that that last game because any one single game could go either way. But you can kind of we had a seventeen game lead our seven game lead with seventeen to play, and you can just kind of feel it slipping away. But what really got us was we went to Philly and and they swept us four game series. I think they might have swept us in New York too. So I think it was that was really what what swung the whole thing was that if we just won one of those games or two of those games, then it would have been you know pretty much lights out. Um And you know they they had even you know, went on to win, win the world series the next year I mean, they had good players um utley and ryan howard and etc but um jimmy rollins but yeah it was that was harder and that was definitely a, a tough one to to swallow because you know we had we thought we were at the start of this dynasty when you have um reyes and a lot of the young town mixed in with the veterans it just felt like okay you know, the Yankees had their run in the 90s and early 2000s, and now the Mets' turn, and, and it sort of just kind of fell apart um, much sooner than expected. Do you think that you saw
0: David Wright in his prime? Do you think if David Wright had stayed healthy, he would be a Hall of Famer? For sure. Yeah.
1: He was, he was just an all around solid player. And, uh, and he had that extra factor. He's, you know, he's one of my favorite teammates that I had. He, he had that extra factor of just being a, a great leader in the clubhouse. Um, you know, a lot of guys that are in the position that he's in where, you know, you're hitting third or fourth in the lineup or whatever it is, and you have a lot a lot of expectations, especially in a city like New York. He was also, you know, even at a young age you can see he was going to step up and become that very vocal leader. But he did, he took that on and, you know, became the captain and all that, and rightfully so. But he's yeah, he was definitely on track for that. What was the contributing factor to where you guys lost that lead seven with seventeen to play? What what would you point your finger to? The team wasn't as good as the O six team uh, just on, on paper. I think um, there's a couple guys that we lost from the bullpen that were huge. Like uh, well, particularly Bradford, right? The side armor. Um, and you know, I can't I can't remember all the the changes, but I think I think what made that O six team so strong was you know, it got, if you got to the sixth inning with a lead or tie game, we were going to win the game. Even if you're down by a run, like it was, it was just that type of team. I, in 07, I guess, you know, once it started to, once it kind of starts to fall in the wrong direction, then, you know, you guys are pressing, you could, you kind of feel happy So happening. It was just like a, it was just a really bad stretch, a really bad couple of weeks. And, um, I don't think there were necessarily, we didn't, at that point, we didn't have like that that starting pitcher or, you know, just that stopper that was going to come in and you knew, okay, this guy's going to come in and shut him out like a Jacob deGrom. Um, you know, we had a lot of solid pitchers. We had, but we, you know, Pedro was at the end of his career. Uh, Glavin was at the end of his career. So those guys were those pitchers, maybe five, six years before that, but at this point, um it's hard sometimes when the things start to fall apart to to kind of stop that downward trend without one of those one of those big um aces that that they were a few years before a
0: couple of years after you retire in 2014 You found Greenfly, and now this is a company, a software company, developing technology for sports, entertainment organizations, used in Major League Baseball as well, including one of your former teams, the Los Angeles Dodgers. You and I have had a chance to speak a little bit about Greenfly before, but I wanted to know, when you were playing, did you have a sense that data, numbers, metrics, analytics, the scientific part of the game was something that you were particularly interested in? Because that's well before What's happening now with a data revolution
1: yeah I, I think so for me founding greenfly was less about the data and all that it was more about understanding that content was going to be uh, more and more important as you know social media is rising and players want access to that and just kind of you know it evolved over time but get, creating a place where all the content the photos and short form videos could automatically just distribute to whoever needs to have access to it. So the players get off the field, they have all their content The you know, brand sponsors or broadcast partners, whoever have their own feed of content of all the games that are happening. Um, that's relevant to them. And, and then they could share it on their social. We track it for the leagues and teams. So that's kind of, um, it's more about that than about actually like the, the analytics or data side of things.
0: And you obviously had a connection with a certain segment of fan bases by being a very popular Jewish player. Of course, you were popular amongst the entire fan base as well. But image was something that you had mentioned, you know, wanted to reach out to the community, you wanted to make sure that you you had a connection by doing some of the charitable endeavors that you did. Did that kind of trigger something in your mind about what players today could use, as you said, as social media as an outreach platform to reach communities and, you know, fans that that are rooting for you or all around the country? Um, through a
1: different type of technology. It it was really more about saying, okay, this, I I love technology and this, this is a gap. There's, there's no way. Um, there's nothing out there that has automated this process and opened up all the content. And, you know, as a player, social media was just starting. I mean, my last year was 07. I think that's what Twitter might've really got going was 07 if, if out later. Um, so. I've talked to all players tonight and I and I, and I see how important it is for them to build their brand so to give them the tools that they need and that they want and the league wants to get the content out through the players and it, it it's a, you know a a win-win for both sides cuz the, the the league getting good content through the players to their channels is building both the the game itself as well as the the players um you know own personal brands so it's one of those things that I saw an opportunity and and uh you know, we built some great tech to, to serve it.
0: And I would say that Greenfly is really valuable to the league right now and to fans because I think baseball has suffered from perhaps a lack of identities, personalities, uh, interesting soap opera sagas that some of the other leagues have had. And to find those personalities, to have a magnifying glass in some of the really interesting guys in the league, and there is plenty of them, or how great they are, their types of play, great plays that they make, I think it's really valuable for fans going, oh, I didn't know about that guy and a league that I think could really, really, really do big things that maybe they've they've trailed in in the past. So how important is that to to do something that baseball might lack compared to other leagues?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And, And baseball, you know, there's there's so many advantages it has for social media. Like footprint is you know, there's 162 games and there's spring training, another 30 games there. And then there's postseason. So there's a lot of content. There's a lot of things happening. And the players, what what we found is, you know, people who are using Greenfly, which, you know, the leagues we work with over 90%, usually closer, like close to 100% of the players are using, you know, our app, have their our app on their phone or use the content is a lot of times the people that are, you know, have the most personality on social aren't the ones that are necessarily the stars, right? It's you know, you all of a sudden you have, you know, that megaphone because you're, you wear the uniform and it could be, you know, a guy in the bench. It could be, you know, the guy in in the locker room that is, you know, the, one of the favorites on the team of all the guys and kind of the glue to that team. And now the fans could be part of that and they could, you know, have a relationship with that player as opposed to just being, oh, this is our utility guy. Now it's that they feel like they know that, that guy and, and, uh, it's good for him. And it's, it's, you know, it's it's really good for the game to have personalities because people, fans are more interested, more invested in their team winning when they feel a connection to the individuals on that team. Absolutely. Well, such a great conversation.
0: I'm going to end with this. At the time of your retirement, there were only four active players that had 300 home runs, 1,000 runs in RBIs, 400 doubles, and an over 280 batting average. Plus 150 stolen bases, an amazing resume. Those are big numbers, and very, very, you know, versatile in in many ways. Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., Gary Sheffield, Sean Green. What does it mean to be part of that that
1: group? I was very proud to be able to, um, you know, have a, a well well rounded game. That's kind of what I I tried to do, um, and you know, those guys are. They're they're legends of the game, and um, you know Griffey's a guy that I looked up to when I was in the minor leagues. He was just kind of coming up at that point. Um, Barry Bonds, I feel like, is the the best offensive player in the history of the game. Um, and Sheffield's a you know is a team of mine who um, was probably the most dangerous right hand hitter. If you say there's there's probably three or four guys that. I think most teams would say they didn't want to see up in a, in a key situation. Um guy like him, Edgar Martinez was another one. Um, so he was one of those guys that was in the, the top of that list. So just to be, you know, kind of mentioned in the same breath as those guys is, is definitely something I'm proud of. I think a lot of people would be really
0: surprised to know that you're in such incredible select company. Again, as you said, those are some legends of the game Griffey and, and Barry Bonds. You don't strike me as a guy that harbors any grudges or anything like that. So, Do you ever feel overlooked or you don't kind of look at it that way?
1: No, not at all. I mean, I, I look back at my career and I think in some ways I was overrated and another way is I was underrated. So, I mean, it's, I kind of had, I had a stretch of five years in the middle that were, you know, that were really, really good. And the other years were pretty, you know, they're kind of solid, but nothing too special. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends what window of my career you look at, but I'm I'm definitely um, kind of, you know, happy with the way things turned out and, you know, just keep moving forward now. I'm, I'm excited to be, you know, a tech entrepreneur and, and hopefully things go well there. Three 40 home run seasons, four seasons of 100
0: RBIs or more, two seasons with top six MVP finishes, three with top nine MVP finishes, And now entrepreneur behind Greenfly, which is such a cool company, bringing social media from baseball to the fans of the game. Sean Green joining us here on New York Accent. This was so great, man. Thank you so much for doing it. And thanks for being so generous with your time. This is a great conversation. All right, many thanks to Sean Green. That was a lot of fun to talk to him today. And time now for the email segment of New York Accent. Why not send us an email, feedback on any of the episodes, the guests, questions you might have about New York sports history. You can always send them to nyaccentpod at gmail.com. That's nyaccentpod at gmail.com. Our email comes to us from Gerald in Tom's River who writes, DA, Greg Maddox's dogs were great. It's the only time you'll ever see him rattled. Do you think that Maddox would have been the same success if he signed with the Yankees? Well, that was a fun episode last week, too. Right with Greg Maddox talking about how he got by, dominated, forget got by, with finesse and touch in the middle of a power era. But yeah, the dogs, the dogs start barking in the middle of the interview. He's got to get up during the interview go kind of close the door and make sure that his wife is feeding the dogs before he sat down. And I don't even think he was rattled. I think that was kind of a signature Greg Maddox moment where gets up, closes door, comes back mid thought picks up right where he left off. You could see the thinking man's game with him, but that's an interesting question about whether he would have been as successful with the Yankees. That was the 92 off season going into the 92 season. And, that was, or coming off of the 92 season, that was a a Braves team that already had those linchpins of, of the rotation. And they, they had this amazing team. So he fit in well with Glavitt and Smoltz became best buds. And they were there for such a long time together. It's kind of hard to imagine him with the Yankees. And then, you know, a couple of years before the Yankees became that the dynasty in, in the nineties. So, I think that no matter where he went, he was going to succeed. I think no matter where he went, he was going to dominate. But it does feel like he fit in better in Braves land because he was so tight with Smoltz and Glava. They all kind of picked each other up. They were constants for a decade there. And I think that that probably gave him a certain comfort, a certain sensibility around those guys that he probably thrived a little bit more. But, I mean, look... And the National League, he also knew those hitters. He knew the lineup a little bit more. Well, a lot more because he had played for the Cubs before that. So he was probably better suited to succeed in Atlanta versus the Yankees. But, I mean, again, you you look at Maddox's stuff and you just go, no matter where he played, no matter when he played, whatever he played in, that guy just would have been marvelous no matter what. Send us your questions at nyaccentpod at gmail.com. All right. Thanks for listening and subscribe to the podcast. Find it all places that you get your podcasts. Anywhere that you get your podcasts, just search New York Accent. Subscribe, rate, and review. If you leave a rate, a rating, and a review, that helps other people find it. And we would very much appreciate it. Once again, you can also watch all of these podcasts on YouTube. So if you want to catch up on episodes you may have missed and want to do it on YouTube, again, that's that's part of the WFAN channel on YouTube. Find us there. Until next Tuesday, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for subscribing, rating, and reviewing. We will see you next time. New York Accent is an original
1: Odyssey podcast.